take your Bibles and turn once again to the book of 1 Kings. Believe it or not, we are starting to approach the end of 1 Kings. It will be finished in a couple of months as we take these large sections of narrative. Our text this morning is from the end of chapter 15, from verse 25, until the beginning of verse 28. It's probably a section that you're not very familiar with, certainly for most of us, not as familiar to us as the next chapter that we'll look at next week, when two very famous figures, Ahab and Elijah, come onto the scene. But for now, we have this portion of God's Word before us. So let us go before His throne of grace and seek His blessing upon His Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would open up Your Word to us. We ask that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, illumine our minds that we might understand it. But we also ask, O Lord, that You would cause it to be implanted into our hearts, engrafted into our very beings, that we might not only know Your Word, but that we might obey it, that we might be changed by it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this text is about five kings of Israel. I joked with a few people this past week and said, what a wonderful thing to think about for fathers, five wicked kings of a wicked nation. It's also a text that we're not very familiar with. These are not famous kings, Baasha and Elah and Zimri, Omri. Nadab, these are not men that we can roll their biographies off on our tongues. But I would submit to you this morning that there's much that we can learn from this. It's difficult when we come to a text like this because if we're honest with ourselves, we like stories that carry a certain pattern to them. Stories that have a happy ending. Stories where the good guys win and the bad guys lose and the good guys make a wisecrack while they're winning. But that's not what we have before us. We have this tale after tale of misery, sin, and death in Israel. It was said that this is so ingrained in our nature that when Charles Dickens first wrote Great Expectations, he had to change the end of the book. Because at the end of that book, if you know the story... The guy doesn't get the girl. And there was a great public outcry because you can't end a story like that. So he actually went back and changed the story. But the Holy Spirit doesn't change the story for us. This is a story of sin and its effects upon a nation, families, and individuals. And we're going to look at these five kings and see five characteristics of sin. First, we'll look at Nadab, and we'll see that sin is unoriginal. That there's nothing clever or creative about sin. And then we'll look at his successor, Baasha, and see that not only is sin unoriginal, it's boring. We don't think of that immediately, but it's true from the Word of God that sin is boring. It is not something to be excited about. Then we look at Elah, 
And we see that not only is sin unoriginal and boring, it's stupid. Conducting ourselves by way of sin is stupid. And we'll see that front and center with the brief story of Elah. Fourthly, we'll see Zimri, who succeeds after a course, Elah. And we'll see that sin is also short-lived. And then finally, we'll look at Omri and see that sin is unimportant. And I hope that by the time we finish our tour together of these kings, you'll see the incredible valuelessness of sin. The incredible misery that sin brings. And the joy that comes from serving the living God. Well, let us first then look at Nadab and the fact that sin is unoriginal. Nadab is the son of Jeroboam. He's not, uh, many think, the firstborn son of Jeroboam. That son died previously in an earlier chapter. But he is the son of Jeroboam and he begins to reign in the second year of Asa, the king of Judah. You remember Asa. These things are going on at the same time. These are flashback scenes back and forth happening at the same time. And the text tells us that he reigns for two years. And his reign begins what becomes a very common series in Israel. That is, a king comes to power, he reigns for some period of time, not much is said about him, except for one significant thing, that he sinned in the sight of the Lord, and that he was punished for it. This happens over and over again. And these kings come in quick succession. Nadab has a very short reign, and the next king comes on the scene. And then the next king comes on the scene. And then the next one. We see Nadab as the living fulfillment of the prophecy in 1 Kings 14.15, where you recall the prophet told Jeroboam that Israel would be like a reed shaking in the wind. Nadab is the first one to show us this. There's something else that we're going to begin to see, though, that becomes all too common in Israel. And that is that the prophetic word of the Lord declaims against sin. We're going to see some prophets here this morning. And then, perhaps the greatest period of prophecy in the Old Testament is going to break forth in the next chapter. The greatest period of sustained miracles in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. But... For Nadab, there really isn't anything that's new. It's business as usual. Verse 26 puts it very matter-of-factly. He did what was evil in the way of his father, and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Not much of an obituary. Not much of an epitaph. The only thing that's said about you is, yeah, you sin like your father. Nothing new here. Not like in Judah where Asa is enacting great reforms, where he is relying upon the Lord, where he is defeating hundreds of thousands of Egyptians. No, here it's business as usual, just like Dad, following on in a line of sinners. Completely unoriginal. It's life in an environment of violence and greed. You see, Jeroboam set up a false religion. He encouraged falsehood. He encouraged violence. He encouraged criminality. He enacted some of these things himself. 
And so in this environment of bad religion and faithlessness, it shouldn't surprise us that a man grows up who says, you know what? I'm not king, and I'd like to be. All I need to do is kill the king. And that's what Baasha does. Baasha is the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar. He's a nobody. He's not of a royal line. He just comes out and takes what he wants. It's the logical consequence of the actions of Nadab, the logical consequence of the actions of Jeroboam, the logical consequence of all of the actions of the kings of Israel who have led Israel down this path. You see, God did not have to force Nadab's murder. He didn't have to turn vast wheels and schemes in order to fulfill His prophecy. He just lets, as it were, nature take its course. Nadab and his father have fostered a climate of murder, and guess what? He gets murdered. The only thing that is really notable at all about Nadab is the fact that he dies and how he dies. It's completely unoriginal. Now, you may think, well, that's good. I don't have anything in common with Nadab. I'm not a king, much less a wicked king of Israel. Why is this story included here? I think because it... The Lord wants us to think about and to understand what makes us stand out from the crowd. You see, what made Nadab stand out was merely his death. Do you blend into a crowd? And I don't mean because you're quiet. I don't mean because of the clothes you wear. You can blend into the crowd in America today if you wear a bright yellow suit. It's by following along with everyone else, doing everything that they do, simply because that's what the culture does. You're in school, at college, and other people go out and conduct debauchery and and get their minds blown away with alcohol, skip classes, don't do well in school. And you do too, because that's what everybody around me does. Other men work so hard that they bury themselves and their families to get ahead. And you know what? That's what you do too, because that's what everybody does. All the ladies in the grocery store and at the various activities gossip. And that's what you do too, because that's what everybody else does. You're a pastor of a church, and you're worried all about numbers, and you're worried all about superficial things and how big your church is. And that's what you do because that's what everyone else does. You see, it comes to all of us. Sin is unoriginal. It seeks to follow after the crowd. And so Nadab is overthrown by Baasha. He's out trying to regain a city from the Philistines. And Baasha kills him. And we might ask ourselves, where is God in this? Why did He write this? And the answer is in verses 29 and 30. That as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant, Ahijah the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin. And because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. God is there by His Word and God is there by His providence. God can use evil men to destroy evil men. 
You know, Luther said something that is a bit shocking. He said, even the devil is God's devil. Sometimes we don't know why there is wickedness in the world. We don't know why there are difficulties and challenges. But often the Lord is in those things. Working His will. In spite of evil. In spite of sin. You see, God is always in control, even when it seems like the world is spinning out of control. So Nadab, the unoriginal sinner, passes from the scene as quietly as he came on. And he's succeeded by Baasha, who comes to the throne for the first time by killing a king. And we see in Baasha, beginning in verse 32, that sin is boring. It's not just unoriginal, it's downright boring. Because you see, Baasha just follows in Jeroboam's footsteps. He has great opportunities here. We might be able to say, if we were standing in the court of Baasha next to him, to remind him, Your Highness, you're king because God predicted you would be king. God put you on the throne of Israel. This is a wonderful opportunity to move Israel from idols to the living God, to strengthen your own dynasty, to build up the kingdom of God. What an opportunity you have here, sir. And Baasha says, get away from me. You bother me. I'm going to go ahead and do what I want to do. He does nothing with the opportunities that are before him. Have you ever met someone like that? Someone that seemed to have opportunity, not just knock at their door, but ring the doorbell and kick it down. And they just slouch around. I can't be bothered. But that's a great job. It's a wonderful opportunity. No, I'd have to work an extra 15 minutes a day. But if you apply yourself, you'll get into a better school. No, I'd rather watch TV. See, he doesn't apply himself at all. He lives a boring life. And there's no change at all in the spiritual outlook of Judah, or excuse me, of Israel. And there's, he even continues the war with Judah. He doesn't stop anything. He's like Jeroboam, part three. He may as well be Nadab. There's nothing different about him. He reigns for 24 years, which is a very significant period of time. And he gets a whole nine verses in the Bible. And six of those verses are taken up with a prophecy against him from a prophet. What does he get for his 24-year reign that he had to have so badly that he murdered the king? Three verses. Verse 33, the year he began to reign. Verse 34, that he sinned, and the account of his death in verse 5. Not much going on there in 24 years. It's just same old, same old sin. Repeating over and over. There's nothing creative about it at all. You see, we live in a day and age in which the church needs to be reminded that being on the cutting edge is not giving in to the forces of darkness and the culture. Sin is monotonous. When we think of the worst nations in our past century, Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, 
We think of some of the worst dictators. Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin. You know what they were known for? They're incredibly boring routines. Whilst he was murdering millions, Hitler had the exact same routine day after day after day after day. He got up around noon, had tea, sat around and talked with some friends, had dinner, sat around and talked about nothing with a group of folks over drinks for a few hours. Then he wandered off, stayed up until the middle of the night, and went to bed. It was very difficult to get his attention, even on extreme military matters, because he was so boring, so monotonous. That's what sin is like. It's not exciting, kids. It's not racing on the edge. It's not being with the bad boy or the bad girl. It's boring, dull, and monotonous. Nothing creative about sin. This shouldn't surprise us because that's the Bible's view of sin, isn't it? Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes that there was what? Nothing new under the sun. There's no new sin you can invent. The most heinous crimes that have been done, things that you see on the news, they only seem new because we have CNN and Fox News. These are the things that have been done for centuries, for millennia. Sin is unoriginal and is boring. You see, Baasha had the chance to bring Israel back from the depths of idolatry. But he didn't. There's only one thing that's said of him between his inauguration and his obituary. Verse 2. Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you a leader over my people, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people to sin. God lifted him up, and Baasha slunk back down into the complacency of sin. You see, the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Even Baasha, a murdering thug of an idolater, God says to him, I lifted you up, and I would that you have walked in my way. But you didn't. You see, the Lord God calls all of us to repentance. There is no sin so heinous, no trouble too great for the grace of God. He calls us to repent. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But you see what happens to Baash as he ignores the Lord. And there's a simple application that we see. You live like Jeroboam, you die like Jeroboam. He is swept away just like Jeroboam's house is burnt away. It's the same verb. His house is swept away, burnt away, just like Jeroboam's. And this is further proof of how God acts. That God dictates history. He breaks in here again in prophecy and says, this is what I'm going to do. And it's a result of your actions. You see, God is in charge... But there is still cause and effect. You see, Baasha can't sleepwalk through life. There are consequences to his actions. Just like there are consequences to our actions. And God uses for judgment both his sins and the fact that he destroyed the house of Jeroboam. Now you may say to yourself, well wait a minute here. 
God predicted that someone would kill everybody in Jeroboam's house. Baasha did it. Why is God all angry about it? That's what God wanted, isn't it? But you see, God is simply decreeing what will happen. That doesn't relieve responsibility for sinful actions any more than it did for those who crucified our Lord. You see, Baasha is destroyed by his own wickedness. It's like that scene near the end of the movie, The Hunt for the Red October. You remember when the Soviet sub is following the Red October? And they shoot a torpedo. And the captain of the Red October outsmarts them. And he closes the distance so the torpedo doesn't have a chance to arm itself. And the captain thinks he knows better. And he says, disarm all the safety measures. All the crew looks around worried. He says, do it. I said to do it. And he shoots the torpedo. And it comes back around. And it comes to hit them. And because there are no safety measures, his first mate looks at him and he says, you've killed us. That's what Baasha's biographer would say to him. You've killed yourself by your actions. You've destroyed yourself with boring sin. Well, our next king isn't exactly boring, but he's not exactly known for his high IQ either. I have a good friend that says, sin makes you stupid. It makes you do stupid things. And I think here we have an example of sin being stupid. In the short reign of Elah. Here's another king. These kings just keep coming and going. Sometimes they reign two years. Sometimes they reign 20 years. They get about the same press. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, began to reign over Israel. And so we can imagine that the son of Baasha isn't exactly going to be a crackerjack. He's not exactly going to be a worshiper of God. He's seen his father. His father's a murdering thug who's as boring as the day is long. And so Elah says to himself, well, I can be better than dad. What can I do? I know what I'll do. I'll spend my whole day getting rip-roaring drunk. Now, I want you to understand the context here. The army of Israel is out fighting a war. And Elah decides, you know what, that's not so important to be out there in the war. I'm just going to hang out here in the back and drink myself drunk. It's not just that he's drinking. Now, don't hear that he's sipping a fine Chardonnay or having a small glass of Merlot. No, the text says he's drinking himself drunk. He's putting down buckets of the stuff. He wants to be blitzed. He wants to wipe out the world from around him. He's too busy getting drunk to live life. Is that a temptation for you? Maybe it's not alcohol. Maybe you want to shut out the world through overtime. Maybe you shut out the world by putting on headphones and putting in your hand a video game. Maybe you shut out the world by a hobby like carpentry, mechanics. You see, Elah wants the world to go away. He just wants to sit around and sin all day long. He has no purpose in life. It's stupid. What's his legacy? What would 
his grandchildren say about him. What about that king? Boy, could he party. What a partier. That's a legacy. That was the legacy of Herod, amongst other things. Murderer, killer of his family, killer of John the Baptist. Boy, could he party. Is that the kind of legacy that you want to leave fathers? Boy, did he know how to show a good time. Well, he wasn't much of a dad, but boy, was he a Celtics fan. Well, you know, he never really treated mom right. and didn't really work very hard. But he knew NASCAR. No. You see, we're tempted in the same ways to block out the world. You see, our legacy is to be one of faith of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, of believing in the Lord, of trusting in Him, not trying to blot out the world, because all that does is bring ruin on your head. And that happens to Elah. After just a few short years, one of the guys who's around court notices, quite frankly, what a dope Elah is. He notices how easy it would be to take over. He may even remember the stories about how Baasha knocked off Nadab. And so we've got a version here of the Godfather or the Sopranos going on. Now all you need to do to be king is to whack the king. And Zimri thinks he knows what he can do. And so he goes out and he strikes down the king. The troops are off away. They're they're besieging a city of the Philistines. And he conspires and kills the king. And it seems like this Zimri is a very ruthless and powerful man. But through the life of Zimri, we see the truth that sin is short-lived. You see, Zimri thinks he can take what he wants. That sin will get him ahead. And he appears to be a man of action and of planning. He knows the army is away. He knows the king is drunk. Perhaps even, we don't know from the text, but perhaps even the home where the king is, that guy is in on the conspiracy. Zimri finds the perfect time. He goes into the house and he kills the king. He would appear to be a man of power. He's in charge of half the chariots, half of the cavalry. But in reality... Zimri's not a good planner. He had no clue that the army wouldn't support him. The first thing that happens when the army finds out is they say, who's this Zimri guy? Let's find somebody to lead us and let's go wipe him out. Zimri and his, perhaps his compadres are sitting there going, what have we done now? What do we do? How do we get out of it? We don't have any support. You see, Zimri's about to find out that ruthlessness does not assure safety. And he has a distinction that no other king has. He has the shortest reign in the history of Israel. He gets to be king for a week. Sin is short-lived. Righteousness is not. Moses knew that. When he would not suffer the pleasures of sin for a season but rather chose the righteousness of God. And we see that this is not surprising because in verse 19, He sinned and did evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, 
for the sin that he committed. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that seems kind of odd. He's only been king a week. How much sin could he do in a week? But I think, first of all, that describes his entire personality. His life even before he was king. It's what drove him to think he could murder to get the crown. But I think there's something else here. There's the principle that we're not to put off to tomorrow what we could do today. You know, I imagine there might have been someone at court that once Zimri was in charge might have said to him, you know, it's not been going very well for the kings lately. Have, have you noticed their lifespans aren't very long? They, they keep getting killed. And these men keep coming and prophesying against them for not serving the Lord. Maybe... You know, just maybe we might want to consider serving the Lord so that we can reign for a while. What do you think? Well, we know Zimri's answer. Oh, no, I don't need God. I'm sure I'll be reigning for 30 or 40 years. Or seven days. He just puts it off. He's like Felix in Acts, who hears the great, one of the greatest preachers of all time. Paul preaching to him of justification, of repentance and resurrection. And Felix says, you know, you've almost persuaded me. Why don't you come back a week from next Tuesday? Have your people call my people and we'll do lunch. Is that how you're tempted to live your life? To put off prayer. To put off reading of the Scriptures. Perhaps even... You don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Perhaps you're even here at church today and you think, well, this is a good story and I'll think about it and maybe I'll be persuaded. I was thinking about reading the Gospel of Mark next week. Maybe. The Lord calls you to repent today. You don't know if you have another week. You may not be here next Lord's Day. Zimri wasn't. The call to repentance comes now. Today is the day of salvation. Zimri learns that very quickly to his despair. He sees this army come in and he sees the short-lived success that he has and he gives up, which is another characteristic of short-lived sin. You see, sin is short-lived because it doesn't persevere in the face of difficulties. It doesn't work through challenges. Sin says... You know, this baby that's going to be born is going to have birth defects. We don't know. Let's just not bother. Righteousness sits in the hospital. Righteousness does round-the-clock feedings. Righteousness praises life that God gives. Righteousness perseveres so that the effects of righteousness are felt for generations to come. Sin can't be bothered. It's short-lived. Well, Zimri's sin is short-lived because of our last king who comes on the scene. The fifth king, Omri. And we read his story in verse 21 to verse 28. And he brings stability to Israel. He reigns for a good while, 12 years And he establishes a dynasty. Now, you don't get the picture from here how important in terms of history Omri is. 
We'll talk about the difference between the historical record and the biblical record in a second. But Omri founds a dynasty that will take us from now until 2 Kings 12 to go through. It's a good bit of time, several months of sermons. He founds a dynasty that is so secure that decades later, the Assyrians, the major empire in the area, will refer to Israel as the land of Omri, or the house of Omri. He's a pretty big guy. He's one of the important kings in that area. As a matter of fact, we know a lot about him. We know more about Omri from Assyrian tablets and Canaanite records than we do from the Bible. Because he was a big, powerful guy. He establishes a new capital in Samaria. A capital built on a hill that will withstand, as we will see, many sieges. He's a smart man. He secures his reign. We might even imagine that he wanted to found a new capital so he could have a new era for a new dynasty, a break with the past. Don't worry about this God worship anymore. Don't even worry too much about the golden calves. Let's start a new beginning. You can imagine the reporters coming around, looking at the shiny new buildings, wondering what a wonderful king Omri was. But not so the Holy Spirit. To the Holy Spirit, there's little said about him except for formulas. He's not stupid like Elah. He's not trivial like Zimri, king for a week. But he is, quite frankly, inconsequential. You see, if Omri's reign were happening today, he'd be on the cover of Newsweek, Time, and a dozen other magazines. Everyone would try and interview him and find out what his views on foreign policy were and what he thought the economy was. But you see, the Bible doesn't care anything about that. The Bible doesn't care for fleeting events. The Bible cares for eternal events. And in the Bible's mind, he's just another king that sins after the way of Jeroboam, that doesn't believe in God. He's just another one in a series of kings. He does everything but believe in God. You see, he didn't understand the concept behind the story of the pearl of great price. You remember that story? The man finds a pearl of great price buried in a field. And what did he do? He sold everything he had, lock, stock, and barrel, just so he could get that field because he knew the treasure that was there. Omri says, there's no pearl. There's no treasure. There's no God. There's me and my new capital. And the Holy Spirit says, that's not so important. We don't need to talk about you much. Sin really isn't that important. It comes and it goes. There's nothing new or creative about it. It's short-lived. It's boring. It's not very bright. Why should we be concerned about you, Omri? You see, the Holy Spirit tells us what he thinks is important. What he thinks is important is not that Omri founded a more stable dynasty but that he did more evil than all who were before him. You see, Omri's legacy, dear fathers, is a man by the name of Ahab. 
That's his real legacy. A son whose name is all but a curse in the Bible. Omri had no interest in righteousness. No interest in faith. No interest in the Lord. And it shows in his legacy. His son is a worse sinner than he is. You see, Omri provoked the Lord. That was what he was punished for. In verse 26, he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by idols. That's his legacy. The question then comes to us today. What will our legacy be? Will you provoke the Lord by not believing Him at His Word? Will you provoke the Lord by not believing in the sacrifice of His Son? You see, that is the path that lays before us if we don't follow God's Word. It's a path of sin, a path of destruction. God calls us off that path by His Word to believe in His Son, to go to a place of healing, love, and righteousness. This is the call that God places before us. You see, God gives us this point to point us to real significance in life. Real significance is not found in the things that we do, but rather in our obedience to the Lord. In obeying the call of His Gospel. In obeying His law. In following after His Son. These depressing stories are an encouragement to us to push on in the faith. To see how useless, worthless, stupid sin is. That it doesn't have anything of value. That it will never yield fruit. But only a life of faith. And righteousness, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, yields real meaning. This is true whether we're six or ninety-six. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us these stories. These stories to remind us that You call us away from a life of sin that You do so for our own benefit, that we might live lives of worth, live lives of meaning and purpose. We ask, O Lord, that You would convict us of our sin, that You would drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would seek meaning and purpose only in Him. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, dear people of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever, triumphing always over sin in your life. Amen.